Truth Espresso, Episode 61. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello and welcome to this exciting uh, episode of Truth Espresso. I am your host, Daniel Minnick. And wow, episode 61. I mean, it is hard to believe that we have already passed 60 episodes here at Truth Espresso. You know, when I first started out planning this podcast, I recognized that the average number of episodes per podcast hovered around 8 to 12. Now, that's not very much. You probably follow several podcasts that have quite a few episodes already, and so the podcasts that you're following are not in those statistics. Um, if you take all of the podcasts ever attempted average with all the successful ones, then the average number of episodes total before the podcast stops is around 8 to 12. And so as I was planning Truth Espresso, I have to tell you, I was nervous that I was not going to get past that 8 to 12 episode mark. And so God has been good for sure and to pass 60 episodes. Wow. Thank you. God for the influence that Truth Espresso is having up to this point. And if you have listened to any number of those episodes, I would sure like to thank you for your listening support. And I am amazed that God has allowed us to keep going as we are and not to worry if you love Truth Espresso. We have no shortage of topics here. My wife is also looking forward to coming back to Truth Espresso to talk about other things that are somewhat related to abortion and the value of humanity and proper care. But if you've been listening to the last three episodes, we are continuing a series talking about economics, and um, I am intending to wrap up the series on economics in a few episodes. Unfortunately, I keep finding more and more things that I want to talk about, and how this follows this, and how this leads into the next thing, and I want to get into democracy and socialism and even how Jesus' instruction about how not to build a tower has to do with explaining a lot of the world's ills concerning depressions and recessions. Yes, Jesus gave a quick parable lesson that actually some historical economists recognized and used the same illustration to explain what hundreds and thousands of politicians and Ivy League economists don't understand. And if only we would listen to what Jesus has to say and understand what he meant and how it applies to the economy, we could avoid these nasty depressions and recessions. But the last three episodes in this series on economics was talking about 
basically the blessings of destruction or the alleged blessings of destruction. And we were looking at the strange proposals of Nobel laureate economist Paul Krugman over how he thinks the economy needs to be managed. And of course, coming from a biblical position as we look at the law in the Bible and the Austrian school of economics, which I believe can be very much synchronized, I would say that the economy does not need some Ivy League ivory tower think tank or government to manage it. The economy is us. The economy is the people who go to work every day and make money. There's exchanges there and the sum total of exchanges when you don't have the think tanks and the government trying to interfere with the economy and push the buttons and pull the levers, you don't end up with these large nationwide or worldwide or asset class bubbles that go bust and end up with huge recessions and then the solutions that are proposed by the government and those Ivy League economists like Paul Krugman only make things worse, only lead to yet another reinflation of an even bigger bubble. And so, what I want to focus on in this episode is to continue from what we were analyzing from Paul Krugman on the last episode. Now, the last episode was about the parable of the broken window and how breaking a window doesn't increase the wealth of the economy. Now, that might be intuitive to understand, and there's a reason that it's intuitive, because it just so happens to be true. But we can't let intuition and truth get in the way of academic economics now, can we? But Paul Krugman, with his alien invasion idea that a fake alien invasion could help an economy recover from a depression was influenced by his own admission of the idea that World War II was actually what brought the United States out of the Great Depression. And so what is Paul Krugman saying? That even though war is a negative thing when it comes to economics, it can be good, basically building up munitions, paying military to do things that are not increasing the capital stock of the country used for consumer goods that ordinary citizens would like to buy to improve their health and their wealth and their well-being, and make their lives more efficient, that these things, these resources being redirected toward something that's only purpose is for potential or actual destruction, Paul Krugman thinks that that is a boon for the economy that can increase the wealth of the economy. And I would say that from a Christian perspective, a perspective of Christian economics and Christian morality, that that is nonsense. And now, before we get further into the economics and history of war, at least in the 20th century, I would like to ask this question and focus more on the moral aspect. Christian, how should we view war? 
How should Christians view war? So just what is war? Well, war is some group of human beings fighting against another group of human beings, and that the goal to win this thing often involves, at the very least, the capture of the leader. But casualties can be expected, and that these casualties are part of the process of winning this war, and that the idea is that peace comes after the conflict is resolved, and usually it is not resolved by some kind of peace pact. It is usually resolved by at least one side, if not both sides, facing devastating losses, and then realizing that this just cannot keep on going for the sake of at least one side, and then we realize that one side has to surrender, and then often the other side makes demands for surrender that could further harm the livelihood or the economy of the defeated side. But how should Christians understand this concept of war? Well, first of all, given that war, unless you're talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, war is a battle between one group of human beings over another group of human beings. Well, question number one for our consideration as Christians viewing the topic of war is, what are human beings? Now, if we go back to the book of Genesis, and we look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, God talks about justice. And Chelsea and I, under discussions about what is the unborn, recognizing that the unborn is a human being, we also quoted Genesis 9-6. And so, Genesis 9-6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So, what are human beings? They are special creations of God that God created in his own image to bear his likeness in the world and have dominion over the creatures of the earth. Now, notice that the dominion mandate that God gave to humanity from Genesis chapter 1 that I did not quote was that human beings should have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle, and every beast, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So notice what is not mentioned in the dominion mandate that God gave to human beings. It isn't that God said that some superclass of human beings are to have dominion over other human beings. The dominion mandate says nothing about humans being commanded by God to rule over other human beings. No, in fact, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the other creatures and take care of the earth. 
And so human beings being made in the image of God, and we recognize that God is not, in his trinity, a set of hierarchy of persons. We recognize, according to Christian orthodoxy, that the trinity are three co-equal, co-eternal persons, that they were equal in essence, they are distinct in role, No doubt, but according to essence, according to the economy of the Trinity, all three persons are equal in power and rank. And although the Son submitted to the Father, that was according to role. And from a previous episode, when I went through Philippians chapter 2, we see that the Son's submission to the Father was a thought, a sovereign thought a voluntary action on the part of the Son, and that the word submission means to place oneself under. And so, though some people can serve other people for their benefit, we recognize that being image bearers of God means that ultimately, as human beings, in our humanity, we are all equal in that respect. We are not different races. We are one human race, and though there are short humans and tall humans, there are some humans that are much stronger than others, there are some that are better looking than others, there are some that can write and sing and perform amazing feats that others cannot do. But when it comes to the fact that we are all human beings, we are all equal in that respect, and as image bearers of God, we retain that dignity. And and may I submit to you that that is something that the godless world wants to take away. They do not like the idea that God exists, and they do not like the idea that those who found their way in power and influence, cannot raise themselves up to the status of godhood and be able to determine the value of other human beings for their own gain. And so when we recognize that human beings are equal in dignity, in their humanity, as they bear the image of God, then for one human to kill another human as an act of murder shows that it is one image-bearer of God infringing, aggressing against another image-bearer of God. At least Genesis 9-6 is talking about individual murder. And so God does not commend murder, he condemns it. And murder is not just some misdemeanor such that if you kill someone, you have to pay a little fine. No, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the law of God says. And although we recognize that the gospel brings grace and healing according to the perfect morality of God, we recognize that the ultimate sense... God determines that human lives are equal and that when one person kills another person for some kind of self-centered gain, then the sentence of death must be on the person who aggressed and that this is to protect 
people from being killed by other people as a matter of stronger killing weaker for the benefit of the stronger. And so that is the question. What are human beings? Now, as we recognize that God does not like it when one human being without his condonement kills another human being, and the cost of that should be life for life, let's ask the next question. What causes wars? And so let's read a very apropos passage that talks about this from the Word of God. Now, James could be talking about the disputes in the congregation to whom he wrote, but it seems that he's applying it to the plight of humanity itself in the world as he says these words in James chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. James said, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Members referring to people. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So from these words from the apostle James describing the fallenness of humanity and how we fight against each other, what is the cause of war? Well, the cause of war is lust, as James mentions several times. You may consume it upon your lusts, even of your lust, that war in your members. And so, because we as human beings are image bearers of God, and as I mentioned, there are differences among people, what do the fallen state of human beings often lead them to do? Well, one person can recognize that he lacks something that someone else has. And so, how does he obtain it? If he can't obtain it easily, he might think that the easiest way to obtain it is to take it by force from someone else. And so James explains that humans killing other humans is the result of lust. It is the result of some humans trying to obtain something that they can't get otherwise, or that to get it would require something of them that would seem to them to be more difficult than simply fighting, taking it by force, stealing, or killing. As he says that the scripture describes that the spirit that dwells in us, this is not the Holy Spirit, this is the spirit of humanity, the fallen spirit of humanity that dwells in us, lusts to envy. So let us recognize that the cause of all wars is 
envy, and envy is a sin. War is a product of sin. It is a result of the fall. We must remember that someone always starts a war because he disobeyed God. There is no righteous cause of war. Now, you might ask the question, well, what about the wars that God started in the Old Testament by telling the Israelites to take over lands and kill other people? Well, we'll get to that later, but for now, consider this, that unless we have special revelation from God through something like the Urim and the Thummim, And I would say that the revelation of God in his word through the gospel shows us that that is a thing of the past, that no human being right now until the eschaton has any kind of special revelation. The prophecies have ceased, and now we live as the church in this church age, and our goal is to preach the gospel to all nations, and that is a a covenantal change from years gone past. And so, right now in the 21st century, when people start wars, there is no good reason to start a war. There is no positive in the wars that human beings start and introduce violence toward other human beings. Someone indeed can be enriched from war, but it is always at the expense of other people. Just as James explained, you kill and desire to have. And what do you try to have? It's something that belongs to someone else whom you lust to get it from and you kill. And so in war... It can be easy to be confused if we do not understand even the economics, because some people indeed can be enriched, but it is always at the expense of others, and it is always at the expense of the total wealth of society or of the world as a whole. But now, before we continue on, I would like to present... This episode's promotional podcast from the Christian podcast community. And this is Echo Zoe Radio by Andy Olson. My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about Echo Zoe Radio. Echo Zoe Radio is a podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. Every month I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God-glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly Reformed point of view with exposés of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E-C-H-O-Z-O-E dot com. Well, there you go. Check out Andy Olson and all of his guests at Echo Zoe Radio. And I have checked out Echo Zoe Radio. I've listened to some episodes and... I've got to tell you, the quality is there, folks. You don't have to worry about weirdness or cultural baggage creeping into the church or passing off as Christianity and Echo Zoe Radio. You just get down-to-earth conversations with knowledgeable guests who are on the forefront of issues fighting for the truth of the gospel and the truth from a conservative Christian standpoint. 
And so I will put a link to Echo Zoe Radio in the show notes. And now back to our topic at hand, the Christian's perspective on war. And so what I have been trying to explain, even with the last episode, if we look at the economics and we saw the parable of the broken window, the Ivy League economists are wrong. Paul Krugman is wrong. And I would like to say, thank God that he's wrong so that we don't look at war as a net positive. The propaganda of these university economists would try to persuade you that war in and of itself creates wealth. And that, my friends, is unbiblical nonsense. So now, question number one was, what are human beings? Question number two, what causes wars? And now question number three, this one is very important. When is war justified? Well, if we look at the answer to the second question, what causes wars, we can understand the answer to this third question, when is war justified? And so if what causes war is sin, particularly it is lust or envy, it is hatred, it is disregard for the value of other human beings. It is the belief that getting gold from someone else, stealing something from someone else, is worth that person's life. It is okay to kill other people so that you could obtain their goods and enrich your life and make your life more easy. And so if that is the cause of war, then when is war justified? Well, simple, self-defense, period. So let's go to what King David said in Psalm chapter 7 and verses 3 through 5. King David said, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. So what is King David here saying? He is saying that unless he is justified to fight, let his enemy destroy him. Let him be without any honor. And may that be the prayer of our hearts, Christian, as we think about war. War should only be justified to defend ourselves against the sin of others, the lust, the envy of other people who would seek to kill us or our loved ones, our families, our friends, to enrich themselves. And as Genesis 9-6 said, the cost of taking Taking someone's life is life itself. And so war is only justified not to enrich a nation, not to seek out dragons to slay. 
as we would project that onto other human beings, not to hope that someone's cage will be rattled, not to saber rattle and provoke someone to want to fight with us. The only justification for war is self-defense, period. And may I submit that the prospect of war should always, always be the last resort in our mind. We should never hope that a war happens. We should always recognize that war kills, destroys, incites hatred, harms the economy, harms, if you will, even women and children. And of course, the soldiers, many of them men, yes, there are women in the armed forces now, and we cannot demean that at all. But how many people have to lament the loss of loved ones whose only purpose of fighting in the war was to protect their families? And so they thought. And so there is nothing positive about war. We only pursue war in self-defense, and it should only be the last resort. We should never ever hope that a war happens we shouldn't even hope for a cause to be self-defense and so that is only when war is justified let's move on to question number four what is the mindset of war the mindset of war is the prospect of us versus them Well, who are the us and who are the them? And it differs depending on the war. It differs depending on the time in history, the societies, the cultures that stir up these conflicts, as we recognize, is always be due to the fallen nature of human beings. It is always caused by sin, envy, lust. The initiation of war is always caused by sin. It is never a positive. But what causes this conflict between an us versus them, where we take a set of human beings who are made in the image of God and we lump them all together into a group of them And then we find other people that we think we have something in common with them, and we group ourselves into an us. Now, that us can be the citizens of one nation, and the them can be the collective citizens of another nation. And so, the mindset of war is often caused by what I would call collectivism. And I hope that you can recognize, yes, there can be solace in finding things in common with other human beings. There is value in groups of people that have things in common. But what I want to talk about are particularly the destructive effects of a collectivist way of thinking. When it comes to collectivist thinking, every individual has to be identified by certain common traits with others and included in that group 
without the individual's choice. Keep that in mind. You are included in a group based on something common that you hold with other human beings. It may be some minute thing. It may be something historical, but you are included in a group based on some common trait, whether you regard it or not. And then one's identity, according to collectivist thinking, is determined by the leader of that group, whether the individual has chosen that leader or not. And of course, this makes me think of the concept of democracy. Now, you might think that democracy is the greatest concept since sliced bread. But look forward to a future episode of Truth Espresso where we put democracy under the microscope and see some of the dark side of democracy. And now, I hope that you don't think that I'm advocating monarchy or oligarchy or plutocracy or something like that. No, not at all. But we cannot avoid the problems of democracy because it forces some people to be under the rule of something to which they are never able to agree with. It is imposed on them. And so, Democracy is a form of collectivism, and I invite you to keep listening to Truth Espresso as we get into democracy very soon in a future episode. But the collectivist mindset is that one's identity is determined by the group that that person belongs to based on some common trait, and then Naturally, every group is going to have their influencers, their leaders or leader. So one's identity is then determined by the leader of that group, whether the individual has chosen that leader or not. Collectivism removes the need to consider anyone as a unique individual. It encourages groupthink. It has the same effect as gossip. The only thing that matters in collectivism about someone who is different from you is what the leadership of your group tells you about what to think of the entirety of any other group as a whole. Collectivism ultimately is simply having your thinking determined by whomever has the most power or influence from your group. Now, there is groups in the Bible. Israel was a nation. There were other nations. But when it comes to the morality of God that is applied to the human being who individually bears the image of God, we need to recognize that God did not create a nation in the Garden of Eden. He created human beings that he created in his image. He created two individuals, male and female, and he instituted the family unit first. Individuals and family units tend toward peaceful relations and trade. 
Not 100% of the time, but normally this is how it works because individuals and families are focused on taking care of themselves, taking care of their neighbors, and when they engage with other people as individuals, they seek peace and trade to benefit themselves and thereby benefit each other. But collectivism, eliminating the distinctiveness of individuals and forsaking the importance of the family unit, collectivism tends toward warfare. I'm not suggesting cultural and tribal identity don't matter. On the contrary, everyone should have the right to preserve and protect their cultural and family and tribal heritage. What I am saying is that when people interact personally, there is likely to be peace and trade. But when a groupthink leader, when someone who is the voice and the face and the influencer of a large group of people, and this leader has gotten to the ranks and wants to control the group, wants this large group of people to follow him, this leader determines the boundaries of cultural interactions. This leader will tend to erect artificial boundaries and dividing lines. He will try to manage the interactions at the borders that he defines to prevent free and peaceful trade and friendships. As a member of the group, your primary loyalty is to the leader of the group, and whatever values the leader imposes as those that define the group. And the more you remove individual names and faces and humanity from the people of other groups, the more comfortable you are with violence against them. Let's think about this. Even in the history of wars in the 20th century, let's think about how American sentiment could have been against the citizens of Iraq. Now, collectively, Americans could think of the Iraqis collectively as, quote-unquote, them, or, quote-unquote, the enemy. But let it never pass our minds to think about the fact that there are millions of people living in foreign countries who were trying to live out their lives, trying to take care of their families. And war destroys that. War can bring people to poverty. War destroys family members and causes widows and orphans, and children to have no parents. Why? Because leaders of the group, leaders of one nation, want to stir the pot of war. And yes, I'm not just talking <laughs> about the United States of America. I am talking about other countries. I am talking about the corrupt leaders of other nations that can end up becoming enemies. I am not 
bashing America, so to speak. I am making sure that we as Christians understand our place in this world and that we understand the cause of war and that we do not romanticize war. So let me give you a personal example. Let's think of what is called the war on terror. And yes, as a devout Christian, I believe that Islam is wrong. I believe that Islam is not the truth. I believe that Islam is fundamentally wrong about the nature of God. It is fundamentally wrong about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. I will say that the gospel that saves souls is not in any sense present in Islam. But how am I as a Christian to think of Muslims? Well, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that all power is given to him in heaven and in earth, and that therefore we are to make disciples of all nations. And so, as Christians, how do we view the Muslims? Well, when we take away the fog of war, when we take away that blinder, those glasses over our eyes to think collectively, and we recognize that just as we are human beings created in the image of God, just as we are families, we have wives, spouses, children, so Muslims have the same. And I have worked with a Muslim. (laughs) There were no bullets going back and forth, thank God, and there was no reason for that either. What does life as an individual and as a member of a family involve? It involves working and taking care of people. It involves feeding your family, and it means going to work. And so, I can work peacefully with a Muslim. I can be friends with a Muslim. In fact, I would say that given the conversations that I have had with this Muslim co-worker, I actually consider him a closer friend than other co-workers. Now, I haven't gotten into deep theological discussions with many people. I've talked, I've shared my faith with several people at work, and I found other Christians there too. But I have had conversations with a Muslim co-worker, and I passionately presented the gospel to this Muslim co-worker, and he very much appreciated that. Now, we both are faithful to our faiths, and we both recognized that unless the other one repents, we, on both sides, believe that the other one will face the judgment of God. But we could be amicable about that. We vehemently disagree. And yet we've had several hours of very friendly, very intriguing conversations. And why does this not cause us (laughs) to fight each other? Because we know each other. We've seen pictures of each other's family members, 
our families are actually similar size. We both have four kids. We have collaborated on projects together at work. And so clients didn't get what they need if it weren't for this Christian and this Muslim working together peacefully and completing an important task in the economy. And so we both recognize that we have families to feed and we can do that together and we are quite fond of each other. But what is the mindset of war? Collectivism. Us versus them. And if we don't know the names and faces of the individuals and families across the ocean, what are we tempted to do? Think of them as less human. Think of their lives as expendable, as mere collateral. They're just numbers. And when children are crying over the death of their father, do we just think, well, that's just the nature of war. And sometimes, unfortunately, that happens. Christians, we are better than that. And I'm not saying that there aren't times that war is justified, as I said, for self-defense. But Christians, we really need to think maturely and think as Christians when it comes to war. We need to see the havoc that it wreaks on image bearers of God and how it rips into the family unit that God has instituted. And as King David said, if the reason he was fighting was not out of self-defense purely, he wished that his enemy would utterly destroy him and bury his honor in the dirt. Christian, let us have that mindset, not the mindset of the world that pits human against human, pits strong against weak, looks for excuses for war to expand one's boundaries and enrich selves out of lust while other human beings suffer and die. And so, Christian, let us keep in mind the answers to the questions we asked. What are human beings? We are created in the image of God. What causes war? Sin, lust, envy. When is war justified? Only in self-defense. And not to be sought, even for that reason. And what is the mindset of war? It is an us-versus-them spawned by destructive collectivism. And so I hope that this passionate episode has possibly made you think a little bit about this topic of war that sometimes when we think collectively and we think of just numbers that, you know, it can cause us to devalue humanity. And so if we're fighting for the right of the unborn to life, we should have a pro-life perspective all around and not seek reasons for other people to die as much as it depends upon us the apostle paul says let us live peaceably with all men and so the next episode stay tuned as we tackle 
the questions about, well, what about the wars that God commanded in the Bible? And how should we view our enemies now? Is there a difference between the Old Testament setting and our role as Christians in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus Christ? I mean, this isn't a conflict with God's will. So I hope you look forward to this episode as we continue this discussion about Christianity and war. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 